Spiritual growth is a special part of Christian life. It is when we mature in our faith and grow closer to God. But here are three excuses you can use to get out of spiritual growth. The immaturity excuse. Why would I want to grow up spiritually? The more I grow up, the more responsibility I have to the church and to others. It's much more fun being spiritually immature. I'll leave the spiritual growth to the spiritual grown-ups. The scheduling conflict excuse. I would try to grow spiritually, but then I'd have to read the Bible more and spend lots of time in prayer, and I just don't have room for that in my schedule, especially not during football season. And finally, the no thanks excuse. I would try to grow closer to God, but that's something a really dedicated Christian would do. I'm more of a Sunday Christian. I show up, I smile, I leave. What I don't do is grow. It's just not for me. The Christian's Guide to Excuses. Wishing you good luck and great excuses. That was that kind of autobiographical to some of you. Well, we come to the end of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, Paul has been... Uh, emphasizing two very important things all the way through this letter. He's been talking about the, the return of the Lord Jesus and clarifying some issues about that. And at the same time, he's been challenging the Thessalonians as to how they should live in their faith as they wait for the return of Jesus Christ, whether they meet him in the clouds in the air at the rapture or whether they meet him on the day of resurrection. And so when he comes to the end um, of this wonderful letter, He gives them a challenge, I think, that would be an appropriate challenge for us too as we end our study on 1 Thessalonians. And that is, he gives them the challenge to continue to grow up and to continue to seek after spiritual maturity. He didn't offer them any excuses. He didn't want anybody uh, to have an excuse as to not to grow up and to mature spiritually. But he wants everyone, uh, the Thessalonians in that day and us today, to mature spiritually and to grow into the image of God and to cooperate with God uh, in that process. Uh, pastor was talking to a little boy one day as he was ta- addressing a Sunday school class and he was talking about creation. And he finally looked at the little boy and he said, who made you? And the little boy said, well, to tell you the truth, I ain't done yet. And, and that's true about all of us. We ain't done yet because God has not completed his work in us to develop us into the person that he wants us to be. And so the process of spiritual maturity begins that we have a relationship with Christ and we have a desire then to do the things in the spiritual disciplines mentioned in the video like spending more time in Bible study, spending more time in prayer, making ourselves available to God and simply telling God, work through me, change me, develop me, grow me into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, with that as the background, let's hear what Paul says in these closing words and then understand what he means uh, as we break it down. Paul says this, he says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I think it's very obvious as we hear those words that Paul is bringing to a conclusion a letter that was very significant for him uh, to write to this this group of believers that we've been calling the faithful church. Because I think they were. I think they were very faithful. And and 
I mean, the one other insight as we come to the end of the message today, I think that will shed some light on that as to how faithful they were and how readily they took the word uh, of Paul in as the truth of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the bottom line is that when we are called to continue to let God work in us for spiritual maturity is to remind us that we are all a work in progress. Now, there's a little children's song that uh, I sang a long time ago, and that is, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. You know, he's still working on me and I hope he's working in your life. If you spend time with God, you'll learn something every week, perhaps even every day about the scriptures and about what God wants out of us in our life. And the reality is, the Bible tells us that as we grow in that relationship with God, that day by day, God is changing us as Christ followers into the image of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul would say that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, that's a wonderful process that God is at work in in our life in doing. And that is we are being transformed through the glory of God into the image of the Lord. Isn't that something? That that's what God wants to do. Now, there are three uh, major spiritual truths in this passage as we bring this to a close that, that Paul says, and I think we need to listen to. First of all, he says that God himself is the one who is working in our life to produce spiritual maturity. God himself is the one who's working in our life to produce that spiritual maturity. We don't have anything that really compares with it in our English language, but in the Greek construction of that sentence, um, Paul used uh, the impact of a triplet, and which would give an added emphasis to what he was saying. And so it really would read this way. May God, may God himself... May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you. Now, not only is that significant about the emphasis and threefold on God, and you can relate that maybe to the Trinity as well, but also he calls him the God of peace. He could have called him the God of glory. He could have called him the God of strength. He could have called him the God of power. He could have called him the God of grace. But he calls him the God of peace. And I think the reason he did so is because that was in the pre-Christian area, really. And there was a lot of uh, tumult about this new way of following after Christ. And so these new believers were encouraged to stand strong in their faith, to grow in their faith. And they had, they had opposition in doing that. Today we're encouraged uh, to follow the God of peace because we need that peace in our life because we're living in what might be called a post-Christian era. That there are less believers today who are really strong in their faith. We have more influences in our culture today that are not Christian. And so it's a difficult time. And so God promises to be our peace, our God of peace. And give us that wonderful peace that only He can give to us as we go through these challenging times. Now it's also important that we look at uh, our, our, our salvation experience when we're talking about growing and spiritual maturity. And our salvation experience can really be described in three uh, tenses or three stages. And there's some words that we don't often use, but words that I think we need to be at least familiar with. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. You see, that talks about three tenses of our salvation. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. 
Now see, that's where justification comes in. In the past, you were justified because your sins were forgiven and God saved you from the penalty of sin. In the presence, we're experiencing sanctification. You know, God is saving us from the power of sin. And we as Baptists don't use that word too often, sanctification. We think that's more of a word for, for those who are, are more Pentecostal in their faith. And we're afraid if we get a dose of the Holy Spirit, we don't know what we might do. And so we're kind of afraid of that uh, 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 sanctifying experience. But that's where God is saving us from the power of sin. And then in the future, we will experience glorification. We're going to have a glorified body. And therefore, we're going to be glorified in that daily, daily process that Paul talked about. By unveiled faces, we're being changed into the glory of Christ. One day, we're going to be like that. One day, we're going to be full and complete and mature as we stand before Christ. And the bottom line of all of this is that Paul is saying to us that God, the God of peace, the God who created us, He is the God who's going to bring about this change in your life. We have to make ourselves available. You know, we can try all kinds of things to improve our quality of life. And we have to do some of these spiritual disciplines, Bible study and prayer and attendance for other people of faith and worshiping God on a regular basis so that we can open our lives, so we can grow in, in, in our relationship with God so that He'll have something to work with. And it all comes down to what Augustine said so long ago. Augustine said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So with all that striving in your life to be a better person and to be better spiritually, you're not going to get there until you commit your life to Christ. And the process and desire by God to work into our life is bringing us to a spiritual level of maturity that we can't do on our own. And it, it, it remains a testimony of the grace of God at work in our lives. Now, let me give you an illustration about that struck home with me this week. I think we're all aware of the fact that beautiful, precious pearls used in jewelry are, come from uh, an oyster. And, and how that starts, you probably are familiar with it, but I hope you can pick up on something else that struck me this week. There's some little irritant that gets into the, the shell of the oyster. It could be a broken piece of shell. It could be a parasite. It could be a grain of sand. And what the, uh, what, what the oyster experiences is a little irritation there in the soft folds of the, of the oyster's body. And so what it begins to do is to secrete uh, that mother of pearl that's called nacre. And it begins to go around that, that uh, irritant, whatever it was, a piece of shell, a parasite, or uh, a grain of sand. And, and the oyster keeps on secreting that solution that keeps on coating and coating and coating that irritant until it produces that beautiful pearl. And it's valuable. And they're beautiful, beautifully worn. Now, what does that have to do about our life? Well, if we really understand what the Bible teaches, and, and it says to us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that means that we all have been an irritant in God's sight in some way or another. And instead of, of getting rid of us, that God himself has wrapped us up in his grace through Jesus Christ. He sent him to die on the cross for our sins so that we'd no longer be an irritant to him, but that we could be righteous and holy in his sight. He sent Jesus to die for our sins so that as we confess our faith in Christ, then we are declared righteous in God's sight. And God does not see our sin, but God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then God envelops us in, into being the followers that he wants us to be. 
And the reason for that is what the whole reason by why God created us is because God wants a relationship with us. See, God wants a relationship with us so much that he sent Christ to die for our sins. Without that, we can't have a relationship with God because we are not righteous. We're sinful. We're still irritants in God's sight. But when we are in Christ, we're redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. And those we still remain sinners and we still are not perfect, we are righteous in the sight of God. And when we are righteous in the sight of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, then we have that relationship with God. Now, as we grow spiritually, and then for all eternity, as we are in God's presence forever. And God does that because He wants that relationship with us. And spiritual maturity cannot take place in our life except in a relationship with God. In verse 24, Paul says, The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So there's a reminder to us of two things. Number one, God calls us into a relationship. He wants all of us to be saved, nobody to perish. And the other thing is, is that he is the one that produces that spiritual growth and maturity. Now, how does God call us? He calls us through the scriptures. He calls us through music. He calls us through uh, the reading and preaching of his word. He calls us uh, through his love that we can experience. In Jeremiah 31.3, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love And I have drawn you with loving kindness. You see, that's how God calls us, through his loving kindness. Now imagine most everybody in here um, has a cell phone. Some of you might even have it in your pocket. I hope it's not on, okay? But we we all hear a cell phone ring all the time at work, in office, wherever we might be, we hear cell phones ring, right? And it's interesting the different ringtones that different people have. Allison Kelly on her phone has this irritating Clemson rag song that comes on when her phone rings. And I've told her, if I ever get my hands on that phone, I'm going to eliminate that. Well, Monday morning, I had my chance. As we were leaving from staff meeting and walking through the preschool hall, she put her stuff down on the preschool desk to talk to somebody. And guess what? Her phone was sitting right there on top. I just walked by there very slyly, and I just picked it up, put it in my pocket, and went on to my office. I got it in. I said, now's my chance. And she hardly ever has it turned off. But I'd be dog if she didn't have it turned off and it was locked. And I, I, I cr- tried as much as I could, but I could not crack the code to get on it. Because what I was going to do was leave it in my pocket and, and, and then go to the door where she was sitting in Allison Stevens' office by that time talking to her, wondering where her phone was, and let her phone ring and she could hear it. Okay, but I couldn't, I couldn't get it, wouldn't do that. It was turned off and all that kind of stuff. But let me, let me make this analogy then, okay? Next time your phone rings, or the next time you hear a cell phone ring, no matter what the ringtone is, okay, let it be a reminder to you that God is calling you. If you haven't come to him in faith through Jesus Christ, God's calling you to salvation. He's calling you to come and confess your sins, acknowledge your sins, repent of your sins, and ask Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior. As a forgiver of your sins and let him be the leader of your life. Now, if you're already a believer and you've entered into that relationship, God still calls you. And what does he call you to do? God calls you to come into that relationship with him where he can develop you into the image of Christ as you grow and mature spiritually. So let that be, let that little cell phone ring, whatever it is, let it be a reminder to you that God's still calling you. And I would urge you today to know that God is calling you with an everlasting love And it's love that draws you to him. And he wants you to come and experience that forgiving, redeeming love of Jesus Christ. 
Now, the second thing that Paul points out is that God is at work in our life through that process of sanctification. Paul says he wants to sanctify you through and through. Now, sometimes we wonder, well, what does that word sanctification mean? Well, there are some denominations where people believe that after they are saved, that then they get what they call as the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, and that's when they get sanctified. And, and we as Baptists have held on to the belief that God works in our life continually, once we come to know Christ, to bring about that process of sanctification. Sanctification really simply means set apart for God's exclusive use. And while we think about that being sanctified, there are at least three different ways that term is used that we can understand in the, in the New Testament. First of all, there's what we call positional sanctification. And that means when you come to know Christ and you accept Christ, then you are positionally saved in your relationship. You're, you're set for all eternity in a relationship with God, and you're set apart from the rest of the world, all the non-believers. In fact, Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that, that's what happens. We're positionally uh, in that point of being sanctified. Then the second one is progressive sanctification. And that refers to that daily growth that we need to experience. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And then there's the third phase of sanctification. That's what we call perfective sanctification. And that takes place when we see Christ, when we meet with Him. And that's when we will be eternally like Christ. In 1 John 3, 2, John writes and says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. See, it's that last meaning of sanctification that Paul has in mind here. That he's talking towards the future. He's been preparing them for the second coming and how they should live and how their life pattern should be. And that's what he's preparing them for. That God would sanctify them through and through. In other words, sanctification is a total renovation project on our life continually until we meet Jesus face to face. Maybe you can be reminded of that by some of these um, extreme uh, reality shows on TV about home improvement. I think there's like Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I don't know whether some of these are still on or not. This old house or trading places or flip this house. And and every one of those reality shows and every one of those homes, they weren't just given some cosmetic makeup with a new coat of paint here and there. And some of them, they were completely gutted and made new from the very inside to the outside. They were completely made over. And that's what sanctification really means in our life. Is that God works in our life to do a renovation that only God can do. And that renovation works in our life completely and totally to make us into the image of Jesus Christ. In the book of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. Why I bring that up is because Paul talks about then how God's process of change works and covers every area of our life. He says, body, soul, and spirit. So what does it mean that we're made in the image of God? I don't think that it necessarily means that we look like God because the Scripture tells us that God is spirit. We're supposed to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But when you look at the nature of God, you see that God is, is, is a triune God. That God has the Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so I think what it says to us is that when we're created in the image of God, it means that we are created with the same nature and character that God is. And with our bodies, we relate to the world around us. With your soul, you relate to the social world around you. With your spirit, you relate to the spirit world around you. Now, look at each one of them and the significance about that. Sanctification is a process of working through every area of our life, our body, our soul, and our spirit. And what is the significance of that? Well, uh, your body has often been understood by so many, many different philosophies and theologies and all of that, not to matter with what you do with your body. You know, Plato was one that said that the, the body is inherently corrupt. You can't do anything about it. And so, therefore, you can do whatever you want in the body, and it does not affect your eternal being at all. And that's not true. Because the Bible tells us repeatedly that we've been bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And we're told that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, it does matter what we do with our body. What we want is that our body, we want our body to be made pure. We want our body to be sanctified. Paul was talking about their behavior waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be different than the world. We're to be set apart. And that means there are certain things with our body that we don't do. And you remember Paul talked about some of these things, about sexual immorality and about uh, our lifestyle and how we would live and what we do with our body to glorify God. So those are all things about the body that we need to sanctify. Then he talks about our soul. What is our soul? Well, from the Greek word for soul, we get psychology or psychic. And the soul, as I understand it, is our personality, our total makeup. Scripture says that God breathed into Adam his breath and that he became a living soul. That's the totality of who we are. It's our personality. It's our our, uh, idiosyncrasies. It's our ego. It's our id. It's all of those things that make us up. You know, we are are a living soul. And and the Scripture talks about in 1 Samuel 18.1, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And see, that's what happens in a relationship with friends and family and with God, that our soul are knit together in that process is what it is in, in, in marriage. The, uh, the soul of a man and the soul of a woman are knit together in that process uh, to where they become one. They become one flesh. And then he talks about our spirit. The spirit is what sets us apart from all of God's other creations. We have that eternal being. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he tells us that he's put eternity in our heart. That means he's put eternity there. We have that desire to spend eternity with our spirit in God's presence forever and ever. And the Holy Spirit then comes into our life and and declares, as Paul says in Romans 8.16, that God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You see, when we're born again, God's spirit comes into our life. And it comes into our life for several reasons. It comes to gift us with spiritual gifts that we to use for the glory of God. He comes in to give us power so that we can live the Christian life. He comes in to bring peace into our life when we go through struggles and trials and temptations and difficult times. And then he also comes into our life to be the comforter and guide and to walk beside us as the paraclete, the one who's called to walk beside us. Now look at the, look at the way that, that Paul wrote that. That how he wanted God to work in our life to transform us completely through our spirit, our soul, and our body. Now that's a job that begins on the inside and then works its way outward. And the only way that can happen is we totally commit ourselves to God so that he can work in our lives to bring about that product. 
Now here we come to the third and last thing that Paul says. And Paul says that God's process of sanctification in our life will be complete when we meet Jesus. Paul wrote and said, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? He says that we'll be blameless. You know, some of you might think as you were growing up, you got blamed for everything that came along. I was the only kid that grew in the house. And when something got, grew up in the household, and when something got broke, they'd always blame me. And I said, why are you always blaming me? Well, you know, there's only one kid there. And, you know, why wouldn't I be blamed for that? I did most of all that stuff, you know. Wasn't anybody else that did it. I did it. But, you know, the difference between being blameless and being faultless. Being faultless means you don't have any faults. You don't have any sins. And that's not true about us. But being blameless is like a legal term that you're in a courtroom and you're declared guilty, but you're pardoned. Have you ever been to a marriage ceremony? Or maybe you had it said at your marriage ceremony that that the pastor in the early part of the marriage ceremony will say, if there's anyone here who objects to this wedding, let him or her speak now forever hold her peace, his peace. Any of you ever heard that? Well, well, Okay. I, I, I researched that, and where it comes from, I'm told, is that it's found in the Episcopal prayer book. But the history behind it is that years ago, way back in the, in the way back beyond the, in the 50s and all, or even before that, that we didn't have the access to records that we have now, like going down to, to the probate court or to uh, vital statistics at DHEC and tracing marriage you know, licenses and certificates and that. And so there was the concern that the marriage would be legal and that question was asked, does anybody know if either one of these people are married to somebody else? And if they are, you need to speak up now because it would be illegal to do that. And so that's why that was put in the marriage ceremony so long ago. We don't need to do that now because probate court scans all that and they give you a license, you know, to, to, uh, to get married and that's approval on that. Now, think about later on when you're standing in heaven face to face with Christ. Suppose an angel were to say, is there anybody here who's reason to say that this person should not come in and spend eternity in heaven? And heaven is going to be silent. You know why? It's because we have been rendered blameless in the sight of God. And Paul would write to the Romans and would say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None of us are faultless. But we all will stand before God blameless when we're in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned earlier about how the Thessalonians really took that to heart. Archaeological work is still going on out there today in the Holy Lands. I fairly recently have discovered graves in Thessalonica where the believers had one word marking their grave. And it was the word blameless. I think that they heard what Paul had to say, don't you? I think they took it to heart, and they lived the way that Paul told them to live, and that they knew they were blameless, not perfect, not faultless, but blameless. Now, let's go to these final verses. You might be saying, what in the world has the holy kiss and these other things got to do with us? Well, let's let's hear it again and then see what Paul says to us. First of all, he says, brothers, pray for us, and that's a good thing always to do. Paul warned them to pray for him. Then he says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Then he says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, what do we gain from that to do today? Number one, 
I think it reminds us that we must remember that only Jesus is perfect and we need to have patience with everybody else. It was like the little boy that said, I ain't done yet. None of us are done yet. God's still working on us. We need to be patient with one another because Jesus is the only one who is perfect. I find it interesting that if all the things she could have put on her grave marker, Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife that died a few years ago, simply has her date of of birth, her date of death, and then these simple words that say, end of construction, period. Thank you for your patience. Great thing to put on there. See, so we need to remember, have to be patient with everybody because only Jesus was perfect. Secondly, we need to love each other because we are all under construction. Won't you be glad when I-20 out here in this construction and this mess is finally finished? I will be so happy when that mess is finished. I try not to get on it because I'm still not sure how the lanes are dividing, whether I'm going the right way or the wrong way and all that kind of stuff. We got caught in traffic on that the other night. So we thought we'd get off Alpine Road and come up by Polo and come out this way. And they had stopped us because they had an opening in the gate up there and they brought out, I mean, we probably sat there 40 minutes or so watching trucks and cars come out. I go to Northeast Providence Hospital Friday to make a visit. Every time I'm there, it seems like they've torn up something else in that construction process and they rerouted you through the parking lot and all that, you know. But here's the reality. There's, There's minor inconvenience during the construction process, but when the finished product is there, it's great. And so the warning to us is this. Construction zones can be hazardous, you know, and you've got to remember to love each other because everybody's in a construction zone. We're all going through that process of being constructed. So then, how, how does this holy kiss thing fit in? Paul says, greet the brothers with a holy kiss. Well, he's saying that's a sign of affection and love within the Christian community. We've kind of let it, let it filter into the process of maybe a hug, but most definitely a handshake. And you know the origin of a handshake? It was when two enemies would meet and they would have no weapons on them. They would shake hands, so they would say, I don't have anything up my sleeve, and I'm not going to slit your throat. Okay? Somebody said, we better be careful of those hugs because somebody could stab you in your back while they're doing that. Well, you know, if we take Paul's words to heart and we love each other because we're under construction, we'll be more likely then to express that love with a hug or a kiss, however you feel comfortable. Just make sure it's a holy kiss on the cheek, okay? Then the third thing I think that Paul is saying to us is, God will complete our process of sanctification. We yield ourselves to Him. We give ourselves to Him totally. And God will complete that process. He ends by, in verse 24 by saying, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. See, what Paul began and what God began, Paul says in Philippians, then I'm sure that God will finish on the day of Jesus Christ. So here's the challenge to us. We're all in the process of being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We're to be made into the image of Christ. And that's a process that only God can bring about. And we have to yield ourselves to doing that. But we have to make a commitment every day that we're going to spend time in the spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, worship, and letting God work in our life the way He wants to. What Paul is saying to these believers is that He wants them to move forward and never back up. And that leads us to the last illustration, the last picture we have. And it's the uh, Australian coat of arms. And it's interesting, uh, two animals that are on there. I guess you call it an animal. One's a kangaroo, definitely, and I guess you call the other one a bird. That's a kangaroo, and that's an emu, emu, on the other side. It's one of the birds, uh, it's native to Australia, that does not fly. I think a kiwi, a penguin, an ostrich, and an uh, emu are birds that don't fly. 
Well, somebody in the first service left and they said, that's not an emu. That is a female ostrich. And so I went back in between services and I Googled it again, Australian coat of arms, and looked it up and said, nope, that is an emu. Now, why are, that, why are those two things on the coat of arms for Australia? Well, they're native to that land. But here's another thing. The kangaroo can't go backwards because of that long tail back there holding him up, impeding that frog can't go backwards. And the emu cannot go backwards because it only has three toes. And, and if it tried to go backwards, it would lose its balance and fall down, so they only go forward. And so Australia had that on that coat of arms because they always wanted to be going forward. So if you don't think of anything else today, think about being a kangaroo, a hopper, or think about being an emu. You might not can fly, but you can go forward, okay? That's what God wants us all to do. He wants us to go forward, press on, never go backward, always go forward. And let God bring that spiritual maturity in our life. So as we close this wonderful letter and the challenge that Paul gives us, this is what I challenge us all to do. That we need to answer God's call to salvation. We need to commit our lives to God every day and allow Him to work in our life. And we must always look to go forward and progress in our faith and never go backwards. And we do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this wonderful letter, for the Apostle Paul, for his love for the believers there in Thessalonica. We thank You, Father, for their faith. Uh, What a model of a faithful church they are. And uh, as we close this time of studying about this church, Father, Uh, Thank you for all the things that you have taught us and have been modeled by this church. We thank you for the wisdom and guidance of the Holy Spirit for the Apostle Paul as he wrote to this church. Thank you, Father, for the challenge to us as we await the day of the return of our Lord and Jesus Christ, our Savior, and and that we would live to his glory, waiting for that day to come. And, Father, I pray that there will be those who will hear you call, call them for salvation and respond to that or hear that call to come to you and commit their lives to you so that you can work that process of sanctification in, into their lives and make them more and more like Jesus until we meet him face to face. And Father, that I pray for in that strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.